I figured you'd be out and out with you. Tax the rich, feed the poor, tell there are no rich no more. Well, there you go. There's our cue, our familiar starting music, Roger Sales Radio Ranch, People's Patriot Network. It's a Friday, a show dated October 25th, and we got Mr. Brent Winters with us, per usual, and also Mr. Chris joined us for about the first time this week here right before we kicked it off. So, uh, guys, glad to have you along. I took a little day off yesterday and played a, a, a Paul uh, replay, and you know, there's just sometimes you just need a day off, and it just built up to that, and it's funny how that one little lapse can refresh you, and I feel real refreshed and energized this morning. There sure's a lot of things going on, and a lot of very ripe, R-I-P-E, ripe things to discuss. Hey, Mr. Brent, welcome back. Chris, welcome back to you too, buddy. Uh, Brent, you had a pretty good week since last week? Oh, yeah. I try to keep up on what you send me to listen to. Uh, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Then yeah. also we have other friends of the show that send me things. I got a thing from a thing, a video from... Uh, Daryl. Yes. <laughs> well, I got a few, actually. I mean, you get some. I haven't got to all of them, but this one was by a fellow. I forget his name. He's down on the idea that that uh, the Jewish people control the narrative, and he's a ardent Romanist. Oh, that's he's Mr. A, e. Michael Jones. Yeah, E. Michael Jones. Uh, uh, interesting fellow. Well, learned learned fellow, um, ever learning, but never, never able ultimately to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the way I would characterize him, but he knows a lot of things. I don't know. And he studies hard and he works hard and he knows a lot of things. He puts a lot of things together, but he does it all from the point of view that Romanism is the, is the acceptable tyrant yes. to the world. Yes. I don't well, know why people do that. Go ahead. Uh, you know, I, I don't. There's one thing that I've seen him mention twice that I really disagree with, and uh, let's see if I can get DP in here. Uh, he, um, he, he. Uh, let's see if I can phrase this correctly. He attributes the start of Judaism, modern Judaism, to when they actually wrote down and he gives the guy's name in this one that Daryl sent out last night that I was watching a bit of this morning. It's long. It's two, two and a half hours long or something. Yeah. You don't get that all at one setting, but there at the first part of it, he, he attributes the origin of modern Judaism to when they actually wrote down the Talmud. Okay, mm -hmm. and I totally disagree with that. It had been going on for hundreds, if not even longer than that, years before, and Jesus was very explicit about it. He called it the tradition of the elders because it was passed down from father to son orally, and I guess they were too ashamed of it getting out or too fearful of it getting out to even write it down. Well, well, that's right, and that all false religion is like that. That's why the Romanist yet today and for centuries and yet today tell their their votaries, their fawning people, not to read the Bible. It's not for them to know. 
the law is not for you to know. The law, the law is to be kept away from you because you're the un, no, you're the unwashed masses, and you don't have the wherewithal to understand it. That's the policy of Judaism, and Judaism, the tradition of the elders, now written down in the Talmud of the Mishnah, says that us animals, us beasts, us brutes out here, us goyim, goy. They call them, that's an inaccurate use of the Hebrew word as the Bible uses it, but that's what they do. They say that we are not capable. We do not have the intelligence. We're animals. We can't understand the real meaning behind the writings, for, it, for instance, of Moses, the Torah, the Navi'im, and the Wukuthuvim, the law, the prophets, and the writings. We can't understand it. They have it. So what we need to do, they say, is just to follow the simple, the simple instructions of Noah, the Noah laws or the Noah-eyed laws, as they say. Well, the Romanists do that. The Romanists do the same thing. Judaism does, does the same thing. And so does Islam. So does every false religion, because every false religion is ultimately uh, uh, ran by a secret elite. All of the secret lodges are called secret for that very reason, because what they know is not for everybody else. Now, the, the Bible makes a different uh, a different point of view about what ought to be known and who ought to know it. And everybody's responsible to know it. It's set forth, forthrightly. We, in our Christian culture, do all that we can and have always done all that we can, our true Christian culture, to make what God said, his will, his standard, his law, available to everybody. That's why Bible translation is the hallmark of the Protestant Reformation. That's why Bible translation has, was for utterly forbidden. Uh, Rome forbade such things, but now Rome says they don't know what to do because everybody's reading the Bible. They can't stop it. So then they came out with their official English version, uh, English, but it's still not the final version. The final version is in the uh, the tongue of, of being hidden. The word Latin, the Latin tongue, the Vulgate of Jerome in Latin is their official Bible. Even the word Latin is from the ancient Babylonian mystery religions. Latin means hidden, fundamentally. And the Latin tongue that was spoken at the founding of Rome by the, the priest of the family, the shaman of, of the early Roman religion was a copy of Babylon. And uh, all of that is secret. But Christianity says no. I'm, I'm open, I do it open, and the rest of the world cannot grasp, the evil empire cannot grasp the idea that the truth is absolutely open to everybody. And they assume, they even assume that we have secret knowledge as Christian folk. We don't. It's open to them, but the truth is, even if they looked at it, they couldn't see it, If even if they read it, even if they studied it. Now, that's just a fact, and there's nothing we can do about that, but it's open. It's open. But they, uh, of course, again, ever learning. Michael Jones, he, uh, it's worth listening to. I'm glad that Daryl sent it. By the way, I wanted to bring up some, everything about Michael Jones. Put a construct on it in the direction they want. Back to you, Roger. Yeah, back to summation. Um, mm -hmm. I, w I would tell the audience that that, uh, that Daryl sent over on BitChute. I can't, I'm not going to go over to my other computer and look at all that stuff. But I tell you what I will do is when we're uploading the show on CastBox, uh, tonight, uh -huh. this afternoon, uh -huh. after the show, I'll uh -huh. put that link there. Also, I should say, uh, Chuck, our mutual friend, Chuck, uh, there in Oklahoma, Brent, got a hold of me the other night, and he said, uh -huh. I'm trying to listen to last Friday's show. I wanted to listen to something, and I went to CastBox, and it didn't play. I have that problem occasionally because of the mm -hmm. Internet situation here and my upload speed uh, uh, limitations, which I 
cross your fingers. I think maybe we found an answer to yesterday. Uh-huh. Uh, but anyway, that at times we do a two hour show and sometimes it'll take two, three or four hours to upload it. Okay. Mm. Uh, yeah, oh. yeah, oh, even longer than that <laughs> occasionally. And so mm-hmm. uh, if something happens in that upload, and I think it's so slow, at the end of it, it doesn't do whatever it needs to do uh, digitally to, like, seal it where it plays, and it'll load it, and everything's there, but it doesn't play. And mm-hmm. uh, that's what happened last uh, the last Friday show, and I went back the other night and got it uploaded again. So uh, that's fixed. Uh, have that problem occasionally. That was one nice thing about yesterday is I had a little time to concentrate on some of these little nagging problems. And I think we found a, an answer to the Internet problem. So it's going to be a glorious answer, and uh, we shouldn't have any further connectability problems at least because of limited internet speed so cross your fingers maybe that's in our near future um the re- roger yes the reason I, the reason i said hmm when you said that was because i just stuck a big spoonful of uh of uh, stewed pears in my mouth we <laughs> had a friend that brought home over five bushels of pears and I helped him for a few hours cut them up the other night. We came out with four bushels of uh, cut-up pears. Four bushels. That's a bunch. We put those in, in uh, vinegar and water, and then uh, his wife boiled them down. And we got over 50 quarts of pears, and I'm that's all I'm eating is pears and, and butter. I put a lot of butter and cream. I got a, got a connection with an ex-Amishman over here. He's got a cow herd at 25, and he sells me cream by the jar of cheap by the quart. I just eat it all I want, and I'm having a good time here, but that's what happened. Roger, back to you. <laughs> well, yum. I wish I had a bite. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, this stuff is too yeah. much. I just wish it lasted forever. And we only got, well, yeah, only half the pears off that big old tree. Uh, so we couldn't get them all, a lot of them. Yeah, God's good. He, he feeds us. We don't, We need to stop to consider where it all comes from. comes off of his lamb at his permission. Yeah. But I'm glad... I'm glad that uh, I got to listen to Michael, and I listen to him more. I've, I've listened to other things he's said. And I appreciate his hard work, but don't want to be all negative about him. No, and and like I said, anything that contributes to the overall goal, I think, is a step in the right direction. And and the consciousness on this issue, this background, this history, this predicament is becoming more and more widespread, and people are starting to uh, pick up on it. It, we're, I think we're growing exponentially, put it that way. I, I, I think so, too, and um, he's uh, he's a big part of that. I'd like to put up a two-hour video and put my uh, spin and reputation, refuting, reputation, refutation with an F as in Foxtrot, on what he said, uh, because he's he provides the facts, and I appreciate that, but he un- understands them exactly 180 degrees long wrongly well that's a big problem like your uh that we talked about last week your upcoming trial uh facing mr wyland i think that's march 28th was that right yeah march 28th at a place a place called i believe it's everton uh, missouri but you can look on my website commonlawyer.com go to the events button events and scroll down, you'll find there. Uh, I think it's right at the top now. I put it at the top so people could see it. <laughs> I put it up there for Ted Wyland for the prosecution and uh, Brent Allen Winters for the defense because 
Ted, it was my, I brought the idea up at first. So they said, you're the challenger. And I said, no, I'm not really the challenger. He's already challenged the Constitution of the United States. He wrote a book 550 pages long, and he concludes as an antichrist document at every point. And one of the, well, many, for many reasons, and he goes through it clause by clause and blow by blow. We've got the same text, but he puts a construction on it that I believe to be false or misguiding or misguided or whatever. It's not right all through. And fundamentally, fundamentally, he misses the point. That's my point, And uh, I'd like to talk about that. You know, we're not Islamic people. You know, if you're an, an Islamic person, the prophets, the people that write things down have to be perfect. They have to be sinless. Muhammad was sinless. Jesus Christ, they say, was sinless. The prophets of the Old Testament were sinless. Well, that'd be not, it's a nice idea. It's not true. Not only are, were they as rotten as you and I, they're probably worse. As Disraeli used to say, Jews are just like everybody else, only more so. Well, that's, that's the way the people in the Bible, they were sinners like you. Chief, Paul the Apostle said, I'm the chief of lawbreakers. That was his evaluation of himself. But Islam doesn't say that. Islam says, oh, no, you've got to be perfect. You can't write anything that's worth listening to. Well, that's not true at all. It's never been true. If that were true, Jesus Christ, by the way, didn't write a word. He, he spoke and people recorded what he said. God uses men like me and like you. And we are men, as the, it says of the prophets, the Bible says of the prophets of the Bible, the men that wrote the Bible, they were men of like passions to us. That means they were overcome with themselves and their lust at points. That's what that means. And they were sinners. And uh, God uses those kind of folk. He makes straight licks with crooked sticks, as old, oh, that fellow, who was that? Hill used to say, <laughs> straight licks with crooked sticks. But um, well, go ahead. like your upcoming trial and, and discussion with Ted, um, the if it, I think that's a great idea for you to do a video uh, in contradistinction of Mr. Jones's because it provokes controversy. It provokes discussion. Yeah. People have to sit there if they want to get involved in the discussion and look at both sides and consider both sides. And I think in the end that will uh, extend our extend uh, what we're trying to do is raise consciousness. You know, as I, it keeps popping into my mind. Well, two things. One from you remember Joseph uh -huh. Sobran and his writings, and he was another Romanist, devout, right? Uh -huh. No, I don't remember him, but I'm, I'm anxious to hear. Are you never I've read? Never, have you never read Joseph Sobran? I've never even heard of him. He's dead now. He was a guy that started out with William Buckley in the National Review, oh, and he okay. became very aware of this Jewish issue and split away from that and started writing on his own. Um, he he's one of the most brilliant writers I've ever read, Brent. I would uh -huh. really encourage you to go back and his name's Joseph Sobran. He's dead now, uh -huh. and uh -huh. read some of his stuff. He was a fabulous, fabulous writer. He used but, to be on the William Buckley show with the uh, years ago. He was associated with the National Review. I don't know about the show. Okay. Oh, but he's the thing. he's the one that coined the phrase um, anti-Semitism is not someone who hates Jews. Anti-Semitism is someone who Jews hate. <laughs> well, then that's what, um, that's what Michael, that's what Michael Jones says. Yeah. Well, they See, were both right. Romanists. They were both Romanists. Yeah, well, here, here I am attributing that quote to Michael Jones. No, it's no, a no. great, it's a, sober, it was, it's a sobering quote. Uh, and goes, the other well, one that I really liked was anti-Semitism is a disease. You catch it from Jews. <laughs> Did he say that? 
I don't know who said it, but I sure <laughs> like it. <laughs> yeah. And see, that's even everything is a misnomer with them. And they do this on purpose. Arabs make up the largest block of Semites on the faces of the earth. Yes, yes. Arabs, not Jews. And the Jews that say that they're Jews, that by their own admission, most of them aren't. At least most of them, maybe all of them. They're not, they're not Israelites. They're not descendants no. of, of Israel. And um, even awesome. their own people, have their, yeah, they, and they admit that. They don't, most, many of them don't hide it. They're Persian or they're, or they're Germanic or whatever. But then on top of that, to say anti-Semitism, well, anti-Semitism is what they are. They hate Arabs. They shoot them. They shoot them as though they were animals, uh, snipers, killing them all the time. Yep. And hey, uh, they shoot and, and, pregnant and women and aim yeah. for the belly. Oh, these are serious anti-Semites. Yes. They hate Semitic people. The uh, Arabs being Shem. a Semite is someone descended from Shem. That's what that word means, Semite. And Shem has lots of descendants. Um, and um, I mean, even all the Oriental people. All the Oriental people, whether the Near East or the Far East, are Semites. And it's believed, and maybe rightly so, we can't prove it, that all the, the Indians of North America, from the Eskimos in the north of the Arctic Circle clear to the tip of South America, are Semites. So they're, uh, to, to, to hate the Arabs, to be against the Arabs, and what they're doing is to be anti-Semite. We need to say that because let's be accurate with words. I like words. I'm a word man. I, I attach the greatest importance to words because where men lose the meanings of words, they lose their lives, their liberties, and their properties. Yep. Back to you, Roger. Well, I'm going to de yep. defer to Bob. Bob is usually waits till the end of the show after we've chewed a bunch and then comes in to pick his nits, but he's in here early today, so that deserves his, our attention. Hey, Bob. <laughs> uh, greetings to all. Yeah, Brent, I could not say it better myself, and I know I've said it and beat that drum to death, that the idea of saying somebody's anti-Semitic means they're against the sons of Shem. It doesn't mean they're anti-Jewish, per se. So thank you for reiterating that. What I was going to bring up is that quote attributed to Sobran, I was watching last night, actually early this morning um i watched the first of the nine or ten i guess there's actually a tenth in that europa the final solution or the final whatever i can't remember i watched that first one two months ago or whatever it was when we were all talking about it and it made you kind of half sick and i just didn't even want to go back and and uh watch the rest of them and for some reason i got myself back in the groove last night and i watched the first one again and I was watching the second one, which is basically another hour long. And there was a quote, and I should have written it down, but there's so much to keep track of. There's so many facts and so many quotations coming that you kind of get lost in it. But there was a quote from a Jewish gentleman, I'll say that euphemistically, um, way back in the late 1800s, early, early 1900s, that said essentially that same Thing. And he was writing it with pride as a Zionist. Yeah. That the idea that anti-Semitism 
or an anti-Semite, rather, isn't somebody that hates Jews. It's somebody that we've decided to label and take down, you know, somebody we've decided to launch against. And I thought that was interesting. I wish I don't really want to watch an hour of it again just to find that quote, but it was very similar in its thinking, the, the vein of thought that he put forward. So I'm not, I'm not saying Sobrand didn't say it, but he may have... No, I, I he may read have been aware of this guy's writing. I either read yeah. it in one of his articles. His articles were relatively short. He's very good at oh taking a big idea and boiling it down to a few words. And I either heard him say it or or read it in an article. I don't remember which. This is over 25 years ago. But boy, I would really encourage you to go look up some of his stuff. It's S O B R A N, Sobran, just like it sounds. And he was very gifted. Well, I had it. Was he Catholic, you think? Yes. And I remember one of the stories that he told was after he reached these conclusions and started writing about it. And he, his story was he was walking through the airport. He lived in D.C. He was walking through the airport, one of the D.C. airports there, and, and he saw somebody that was a Jew. Uh, that was, you know, walking through the airport, and the guy said, hey, when would you come off the reservation on Israel? I remember him saying that. <laughs> so he got immediate uh, a backlash from it, of course, and then he got booted away from the National Review. But he was, uh, I had a Catholic, my good friend Harvey Wysong, who the audience is familiar with, uh, Harvey's cousin there in Atlanta, and his name's Chris, very, very, very intellectual guy, even though he's a welder, okay? A real high, high-quality welder, but that's always been his profession. But he hadn't had a television in his house in over 25 years, and all he does is read. And he's uh, a Catholic, was raised Catholic, and uh, that's those are the folks that turned me on to Sobran. And he's certainly worth, even though he's not with us anymore, He's certainly worth going back and reading some of his stuff because he's very good. One of my friends from Panama City took a trip up to D.C. for one of these Patriot functions before he died, and there was a luncheon, and he ended up sitting across the table from him uh, there at that luncheon and was very honored to do so. But guy was a great writer. He had a good contribution in his lifetime, and he's got a legacy of work out there you can delve into. And if you're not familiar with him, and it's amazing to me how many people have not heard of him. Daryl had not heard of him. Brent, you haven't heard of him. And this guy was in his niche, in his day, he was highly recognized and highly respected. Mm. Well, after watching those at, uh, that series of 10 presentations on YouTube concerning Europa that Bob mentioned a while ago, I think I saw them a couple of times, and again, gather a lot of facts. I didn't agree with all their conclusions, but I, I, I would say this, from what I can gather of that and everything else I've learned about the subject of Nazism. Nazism, clearly, was socialism confined to uh, the country of Germany. But the Nazi movement seems to be, and this set of videos confirmed it even more for me, uh, the Roman Catholic view of what to do with the Jews. And the Roman Catholics were behind all this. Hitler was an ardent Roman Catholic, as Michael Jones 
And uh, there were many others. Of course, the Lutherans didn't have much to say about it. Lutheran Germany was more to the north, and they were, well, they, they took those fellows and strung them up with piano wire, like, like Bonhoeffer, you know, they murdered him. And many others jailed many other Lutheran pastors. But the Romanists were getting a pass, and the SS troopers were Romanists. Uh, I'd heard uh, a lawyer say on the air the other day that the Supreme Court of the United States presently uh, has uh, on its on that bench um, six Romanists and one and three Jews, six Romanists and three Jews. And he said that's not a crosscut of America, and and you're not going to tell me and not me either. If you got to brain your head, you know this isn't true. Your religious point of view drives everything you do. Yes. Justice Scalia used to say otherwise. It's not true. It can't be true. It's impossible. Uh, because whoever you take for your lawgiver is ultimate. Your life is going to color what you do. Is, you can't put it down. It's not possible. Go ahead. Is Clarence Thomas a Romanist? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Educated in Jesuit school. I forget which one. Yeah, that's know. why. Yeah. Yeah. Are there are there other Americans out here? Oh, overwhelmingly, there are uh, non-Romanist and non-Jewish Americans. But when it comes to those positions, not just the Supreme Court of the United States, but federal courts in general, you're not going to get a Baptist uh, uh, on the federal courts without uh, something funny just happening, or a Presbyterian, a fundamentalist Presbyterian. Uh, that says a lot. What it says is that intellectualism, as, my, as Michael Jones promotes, reason, logic, scholasticism, that's what's venerated. Trouble with that is it, it won't get you to the truth. The, the Bible and God's law and our common law is about facts. It's not about reason. Reason and logic, when you focus on reason and logic, as our universities do, they have textbooks on such things. Once you focus on that, as the Greeks did, as the Romanists do today, once you focus on that, facts have a way of receding from consideration. And without facts underneath of that logic, your premises, where you start your logic, in other words, uh, you'll, you may have pristine, airtight, steel-trap-perfect logic. You won't come to the right point of view because you started with the wrong premise. You can't, you can't think. No man can think. Men think naturally. You don't have to teach men to think. You put their neck in a noose, they're going to think real clearly. Put their property on the line, they're going to think real clearly. Sooner or later, their mind's going to come clear, and they're going to think really well. That's why we have in our common law what's called a real case and controversy requirement to get into our common law courts. The Constitution of the United States says it just that way. The federal courts have no jurisdiction over anything but real cases and controversies. Whatever else they may be, both parties must have uh, the chance of losing life, liberty, property, or a combination thereof. And if you can't show that, you can't get into court, and rightly so, because where the question before the court is not sharpened by people who are desperate and fighting, then we're not going to get to the truth. That's based, by the way, all this is, these are Christian concepts. That's based upon the Bible. Romans chapter one, the truth is buried under lawlessness, unrighteousness. It says that's right. That's why we have cross-examination in our country. They don't have it in the rest of the world. It's the surest, the surest surety of truth that you could possibly get. People take oaths all day long. It's meaningless. Most people that take oaths don't have a clue what they're doing. It's just a formality you go through. They never think about it. They don't know what it is. It doesn't excite their consciousness to tell the truth as it's designed to do because, well, they just don't know. They've never thought about it. But they're, they're, they're enamored with people that look like they're intellectuals. The whiz kids of Lyndon Johnson during the Vietnam War. They were all educated. All that horsemen are listen. 
The facts are what govern, not reason. Reason will happen naturally. You give me the facts, I'll figure it out, and everybody else will too once their, uh, their consciousness is sharpened to do that by adversity. There must be adversity and there must be facts. Uh, e. Michael Jones, he created adversity and me, a man that uh, rests upon facts, that knows the difference. I know that facts are the foundation of all truth and logic is not. And I don't want to focus on logic. I will think if you give me the facts. How do I know that? Because birds are born to fly. You don't have to teach bird to fly. Their mothers show them a little. Pretty soon they're right on to it. Doesn't take long. Um, a horse is born to run. Uh, beasts of prey are born to ferocity. And um, uh, hounds are born to hunt. And they'll do it. Just show them a little bit. Take them out with the other dogs. Bam, they got it. And you know what men are born to do? They're born to think. And integral to their thinking is to be able to picture the concepts in symbols called words, whether it be words of arithmetic, mm -hmm. the symbols there, or the words we have. And isn't it interesting? Isn't it fascinating? Isn't it curious in the nth degree that really, really, nobody has to teach us how to talk any more than you teach a horse how to run or a bird to fly? Oh, we've got to be shown a little. Our parents talk around us. There's no method to it. We just pick it up because it comes natural. Why? Because it's natural to us as thinkers. We think. We don't need to learn to think. And once it's sharpened to us and we've got the facts, we will think. But do not focus or be enamored with all these intellectuals and all their books and all their university degrees and all that hogwash. That is a distraction. That's the evil empire. That's Babylon. That is scholasticism. And John the Apostle, when he, Apostle, when he said, in the beginning, John chapter 1, verse 1, was the Logos. He wasn't talking about re reason, as my E. Michael Jones says. Logos? No, he was talking about a proven fact. And that's yep. what even the courts of Rome had that much figured out, although logic became everything. That's true. But in a common law trial, for instance, what do we ask the jury? We say, okay, tell us. You've got the evidence. Tell us. Who done it? Where'd they do it? Why'd they do it? And how'd they do it? Tell us. We want the facts. We don't want you to be thinkers. No, we don't want you to be lawyers. Don't, don't try to be some kind of a highfalutin scholastic. Your brain works okay. Forget that. We, you're on the jury because we don't want those people that are trained scholastically to figure this out. They won't figure it out. The judge and the, the lawyers, all those people, they're overtrained. We want folk like you to figure it out. We, you get to decide who lives or die, dies. The experts don't get to decide. We just grab 12 people standing around. That's the strength of our country because we recognize that men are by native, by native creation of God himself intelligent. And we do not need to focus on logic. We need to focus on facts. And we're not doing that. Paul the Apostle said it this way. I have, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I have delivered unto you that which I first received. How that Jesus Christ was crucified, dead and buried, and rose again. Uh, friends, neighbors, and kin, those are facts. Go look at the evidence. The evidence, yeah, it's written. And then ask yourself, is this evidence reliable? Again, is it a proven fact? How do we prove fact? We prove it with words. Would we have the words? Yes, we have the words. Jesus Christ, everything he said came back to the evidence. He said, I have witness. We have the witness from heaven. We have the witness from men. And you, Pharisees, you are not persuadable. You don't accept the evidence. What does the evidence do? It proves fact. It's not a matter of logic. Let's start with the facts. Back to you, Roger. To quote Sergeant Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Uh, Brent, let me ask you a question. This has been percolating here with me in the last 
24 hours, I was thinking about Brown versus Board of Education. Um, and I went back and read some on this a little while back, and I was shocked. Do you know who argued that case at the Supreme Court? No. Probably somebody famous today. Who is it? Thurgood Marshall. Well, that doesn't surprise me. He was, so in, he was, he, the, he was yeah. the head of the legal at the NAACP. Uh-huh. They started the forced busing, got, got it boiled up through the courts to the Supreme Court. He argued it for the NAACP, and then I guess was rewarded with the chief justice position when they needed to appoint one. Oh, that's true. No, that's so, that true. So my question is, was he a Romanist? I don't know the answer to that. I'd have to go back and look, but you could look real quick. I'm, now, maybe I can look right now. When he, when he retired, yeah, uh-huh. uh, they appointed, and I, I'm trying to, was it Bush who, who appointed Clarence Thomas? I think it was, or was it Reagan? It was Reagan. Well, let me see. It was in 19, not 1990 or thereafter. It was 1991, too. Who was president then? Well, uh, that would be, uh, been George Bush. There you go, then. That should be it. Okay. So, uh, and, and I, they took, they wanted to replace Thurgood Marshall with the black. Okay. Right. And so Bush went out and found Clarence Thomas, and you remember what happened because he's conservative black, and they didn't want any of that, but I didn't know he was Catholic. So it's just interesting to me the way that they proliferate this and extend it and their guidelines and their requirements and how they've been able to keep this whole game going for so long. Their game is about to end. they got problems on every side that are really large. Uh-huh. uh-huh. So. Uh, you know, that uh, contributes more back to this uh, universal rise of consciousness that I think the world's going through right now, and I think it's really accelerating. And the more that they fight back and, and pull the kind of stuff that they're pulling, the more people realize how unnatural and, un, and, and, and wrong it is, and the more people that are swinging over to looking for answers. I really feel that's happening. Uh, it's very slow. It's unperceptible, mostly, uh, but it's just a feeling I get. Well, no, I get it, too. Uh, you can sense the sway, and it comes down to, again, uh, just getting out the facts. Yep. And the facts are coming over the Internet. The mainstream media, I like to illustrate it this way. I think I've used this example before. If I have, maybe there's somebody else that hasn't. Hasn't been listening, hasn't heard it, but when I was growing up, we had, uh, everybody I knew had chicken fence around the yard. You have the house, a you know, frame farmhouse, grew up in the Midwest, and around the farmhouse is a high fence. We called it the chicken fence, because it keeps the chickens out of the yard, so that when you go outside, you don't have to do the barnyard shuffle as you're going back in, see what's on the bottom of your shoes. So the chickens during the day would wander all around, then at night, we'd run the chickens in the chicken houses, which were just close to us, close to the house, and shut them up. Well, when we got out of the chicken business, went whole hog in the hog business and quit selling eggs, uh, like most people did at that time, uh, Dad said, let's just take this old chicken fence down so we don't have to trim up underneath it. We mow right through, you know. And so we took the chicken fence down. And uh, we didn't take the gate post down to the gate. Had a nice gate swung and had a heavy handle and a big gate post. We, we left that up right at the opening of the walk that went up to the back porch there, the side porch. And uh, even after that chicken fence was down, people would drive up into our drive, hop out of the car if they wanted to come to the door, and they would walk to the gate and open it and come in. 
but there was no fence. They could have come in over by the pump of the cistern. They'd park their car by the cistern pump. They could have well, walked right up, yeah, right up through there. Well, that's well, the way it is. That's the way it is. Just a minute. Well, well, hold on. Uh, I, well, hold on, Brent. I guess we're going to get interrupted. Four oh eight called in. That's an unusual area code. I hadn't seen it before. Is that yeah. you? Four oh eight wanting to get in here. Uh, yeah. Hi. Good morning. Hi. <laughs> Hang on. I'm sorry. I, I I didn't know that you're having a talk show right now. Uh, well, that's all right. Hey, my Hang on just a yeah. minute. I'll finish this, and then Roger will let you in, probably. But people would come up, and they would go through the gate, even though the fence was gone. And that's what's going on now. The mainstream media is sitting at the gate, and they're, they think they're the ones that get to allow what comes in, what's heard, and what isn't heard. But they don't know that the fence is down, and people are pouring across and bringing all sorts of information around them. And they're still sitting at the gate. That's yep. why they're going down. Yep. Uh, they haven't figured it out. The, the fence is down back to you, Roger. No, about four Oh eight left. I, you know, you never know when somebody, cause this is an Atlanta phone number. You never mm. know when somebody's going to miss dial or call in or who it was assigned to. Although I've had it for a number of years now. Anyway, they, they left. Uh, okay. So, uh, Chris, you're mighty quiet today for Chris. How you doing? Well, very well, but always as uh, as customary on this particular show, riveted by Brent Allen Winters and his commentary on the facts, semper veritas, always truthful, that uh, seem to reign supreme on this channel I'm proud to be affiliated with in some small elemental fashion. But uh, I do take particular note that uh, Judith Shapiro's article on your website on the People's Patriot Network and her commentary regarding how the Shatar replaced the English common law seems to be very strongly at play around America these days, and they are cast Sunstein's nudge towards completely changing the law in America to the Shatar. And it's a very, very disturbing uh, situation. I was in a courtroom witnessing a case this week uh, when I saw a judge vindictively lash out and absent any due process whatsoever, sentenced a man to be committed for competency, so-called assessment, competency being void for vague because it's nebulous, and they are using it to weaponize the competency assessment to torture people into submission and to coerce them to not be uh, belligerent claimants or defiant to the courts. Uh, they use it as a retaliatory, discriminatory, class-based animus per se execution from the bench. So it's now, very, now, very troubling. Did, did, did a statute staple or uh, a specialty contract, we call that, um, a figure into this proceeding that with this gentleman or not? Well, this was an alleged uh, violation. Uh, they claimed burglary of a casino that was open all the time. I think burglary has to do with uh, taking from an unoccupied structure. Uh, as far as I know the law, I think Brent might agree with me on that. Uh, and there was actually no victim because he was walking through casinos. Now, I don't I was support what this guy was doing, but he was looking at the machines for abandoned winning tickets or coins that may have been left behind when somebody 
uh, got up and walked off and left them. And the state themselves, being a corporate fictitious entity, tried to allege it was violated and trying to charge them with a felony for, uh, I guess, repeatedly trespassing in one particular location, so which was imprudent. The, the, the casinos are open 24 hours a day. This guy's yep. walking through the rows of slot machines and stuff and looking for discarded tickets or when the winnings were still in the little tray and somebody didn't get them and they've charged him for that? Uh, yes. Uh, some sort of a defrauding the casino or something of that way. I'd have to look at the exact wording they use, but uh, basically the state has made it a felony to uh, enter a casino and to walk around and find things, that seems to be a very, uh, uh, an abridgment of the whole term and avoids the fact the finders keepers being the law of the land and most of the planet. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very convoluted situation when they try to weaponize the law so they can retaliate against someone. This fellow has traumatic brain injury, has epilepsy, and uh, I agree he's a very obstinate and hard-headed and not very intellectually informed individual, although he thinks he's very smart. But uh, I think this was a miscarriage of injustice in this particular case, and it's obviously they're retaliating against him because he has rather defiant conservative views uh, that he is pretty well pronounced in court, and they don't like him a bit, and they showed it very, very clearly. Huh. Well, that's a sad situation. There's... As one of those old TV shows used to open up, there's eight million tales in the naked city. Remember that? Um, you were mentioning statute staple. Now, for the audience, let's use this as a teaching moment here. The statute staple is also called a Jewish shetar. And I believe, if I remember John's teachings correct, Brent, that it is listed on a section of the Uniform Commercial Code called specialty contracts, okay? Uh -huh. And the specialty contract that we call and identify as a shetar or a statute staple has to have two important indices that make it that instrument. It has to have a recognizance, and it has to be signed under seal. Those are the two requirements that I remember. Now, a recognizance for the audience, and I had a lot of trouble with this stuff when it's first presented to me because these words are foreign to us. A recognizance, legally, and Brent can correct me if I'm wrong, is it's written into the contract that it recognizes the root word of recognizance being recognized, recognizes another group of laws. In the statute staple we're probably most familiar with, the 1040 form, the recognizance is I agree to abide by all the conditions of Title 26 CFR. And then you sign it under seal because they require you to sign it under penalty of perjury. Um, and the point I'm trying to make is the statute staple, as you started out with your story a minute ago, Chris, 
ha, ha, it literally has taken over the land. How many of these contracts, and I've never gone into this and, and looked, Brent, it's a pretty provocative question. How many of these contracts in the sale of goods are actually statute staples? The one that comes to mind immediately, or the two, would be a housing mortgage and a car loan. Okay, uh-huh. because they can exercise self-help remedies there. Maybe not as much in the house uh, situation. They still have to go through a procedure depending on if you're a judicial or non-judicial foreclosure state. In other words, in some states, I think there's about 21 of them. They're called non-judicial foreclosure states. And that means that the, all they have to do is advertise your properties being seized. And the three weeks in a row and the fourth week, they sell it on the courthouse steps. And Georgia, Georgia is one of those, I know. Uh, but I think that Chris's statement is probably right, and I would imagine many of these contracts that people enter into to uh, uh, purchase something are, are statute staples. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. So yeah. that whole system is not just the tax system now. It's permeated the whole society through this banking system. Now, don't forget the there there's there's certain conjecture that Shetar was the basis of the star infamous star chambers back in England, and that when they drag you into one of those makeshift courts, that there was some sort of a case over in the over there in one part of it, and they would open it up and drag out the Shetar and then start applying the screws. Well, that would be the the documents, such as mortgage documents, agreements, to uh, pay back money with a surcharge. In other words, usury. Usury. And the, the, I should go ahead. I was going to say I should probably add in the salient fact that he initially refused to speak, as observed by a highly conflicted attorney that was involved in the case they tried to invent for me, who I later spoke with, but he uh, took the Johnny Cochran and O.J. Simpson uh, tactic of remaining silent, and the attorney, uh, the public defender so-called, claimed he was standing on his Fifth Amendment right and not speaking, and the judge took umbrage with that severely and said, well, surely he can answer a simple question, has he read the indictment? (laughs) <laughs> and uh, he refused to do that. Later on, though, he did go into a rather uh, interesting oratory soliloquy and uh, informing the court that they were violating RICO tort fraud and uh, uh, conspiring against him and would be guilty of felony crimes and uh, guilty under Trezevant versus the city of Tampa Bay, Florida, and some other diatribe that was uh, particularly enraging to the court. Imagine that. Yep. Well, uh, you know, so, so, the emphasis of what we do here for the audience, I'll just emphasize it one more time, is to try and attempt to put people in a position where they don't have to deal with that crap. Go ahead, Brent. Well, no, that's revealing. And uh, he has the right, absolutely, to stand mute, M-U-T-E, and say nothing. And for the for a judge to do that, he ought to be taken out, removed from the bench, taken out. He ought to be disbarred because he's sworn and if he can't do that simple, it's a privilege he's sitting on the bench. And if he can't have simple respect for the dignity of another man, especially when it comes to rights 
that our Constitution of the United States has chosen to protect, uh, the ratifiers of our Constitution have chosen to protect, uh, then he hadn't ought to be on the bench. Lawyers ought to be saying that. I, I don't practice law there. Maybe it's easier for me to say. But it ought to be said. I have a duty to say it. I, don't, I have a duty not to stay silent in this case because I've sworn to do the same thing. And he should do that. And it's just a matter of saying, well, um, all we have to do, thank you, and uh, to the defendant. And if you don't wish to speak, then I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And if he wants to do something, he can do something. Let me read the. I'm glad you brought that up. We need to be reminded, and we need to put the pressure. There needs to be an outcry, an upswelling of men and women that say, no, judges, you are sworn to do this. We have the power to vote you out of office. We have the power to tell our state legislator, put a, a bill of impeachment in for you, get you out of the way. You've been misled. You don't have the self-control necessary to be a judge on our courts. That's called Judge Itis. Let me read Nehemiah, Roger. Okay. Nehemiah 5, 3 through 5. Now, Nehemiah is a book in the Older Testament. Now, this is what uh, people say in Nehemiah 3, 3, 5, 3, 3 through 5. We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses. We have borrowed money for the king's tribute, that's the emperor's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards, and lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them. By the back, in other words. For other men, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. That's what happens. The borrower becomes slave to the lender. And once you're enslaved by being foolish enough to borrow something with an agreement to pay a surcharge, that's a contract. An agreement. You've made an agreement with a banker. A banker. Let's just call them banksters. You've said, hey, if you give me the money I want, I'll pay you. I'll use that money and pay you back some other money plus more money. That's an unlawful contract according to the maker of heaven and earth. The banks have the biggest, fanciest buildings in town. And they control much. They're very powerful. But that doesn't mean that they're right. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that that is evil. Jesus Christ says that is evil. Why is it that we aren't saying that that is evil? We need to be saying it. You talk about trouble. You talk about bondage. You talk about putting a chill on things. People shuffling papers. And you take out a $100,000 loan. They shuffle papers for 30 years. And they get three, four times that back. They make you hawk up everything you have. Triple hawk, we call it. Uh, Triple security, three times the value of the loan. That's what very, very common now with banks. And when they, when you default, and for, uh, they come in on forfeiture and take all of it beyond, far beyond anything you borrowed, and they want the value of what you would have paid if you had followed through and paid them all that extra money for thirty years, and they, they get it often. It's, it's uh, best to stay away from them. Go ahead. And, and as you know, Brent, they don't even loan you anything. It's all it's all a trick. Well, I know this isn't the wrong number here because it's my buddy who we mentioned earlier. Did you hear? Did you hear us talking about you, Harvey? Uh, we got a we got a phone call here at the headquarters of Dialysite, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> we understand that you need a legal citation. <laughs> What to mention so, your name? <laughs> you, 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 what what the uh, 
what the uh, secretaries here at the home office <laughs> tell me is that you were in dire need of a legal citation. Oh, okay. And I thought I would read uh, 1982 quote here, U.S. v. Slater. Uh, unless the defendant can prove he is not a citizen of the United yes, States, sir. the IRS has the right to inquire and determine a tax liability. That is a jewel of a sight right there. My eyes popped out when I saw that that night. Harvey, have you have you uh, have you officially met Brent before? No, I haven't. Well, uh, Brent, this is an old friend. I have of listened to Brent. You, you have okay. Well, this is an old friend of mine yep. from Atlanta for more years Real than either old. one of us want to admit, and uh, it's a joy to have him on the show. And you, you two would really have a hours of interesting discussion if you ever get together i'll just say it that way oh you you know me uh <laughs> people ask me what time it is i tell them how to build the watch yeah that's uh, harvey yeah but well harvey do you listen very often not terribly often you know i I, I rarely get up before the crack of noon. Right? Uh, Brent, you, uh, Brent uh -huh. you need to know a little background here. Harvey has been, until this spring, when his mother, 106, Harvey? His 106-year-old yep, mother passed away. He'd been taking care of her for over 10 years, so, and she had dementia and, and all kinds of health problems, and he's been a pretty uh -huh. busy guy for the last number of years, and so he's just getting back with his feet on the ground now. Oh, well, yeah, that'd take a while for a fella to get acclimated back to not being taken. I'll bet you wake up in the morning and I say, well, I got to go check on mom. Huh? Yeah. I've, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, and during the night, well, I had my niece who uh, came in uh, five days a week uh -huh. and, and uh, looked after mom uh, and let me get some sleep. But... Uh, it really is a, uh, a difficult thing to change these confounded habits because I was accustomed to just reading or writing uh, until late in the night. Uh, uh -huh. I knew mom was, mom was going to get up to use the bathroom around 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was always terrified that she'd fall. If I was asleep, I might not hear her and would have a real double disaster there. So I just stayed up until she got up to use the bathroom and then uh, I'd go on back to bed. But enough of my martyrdom. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was really uh, a wonderful experience, and it did a lot for me that needed to be done as far as uh, developing character and... Uh, and I miss her. I really do. You know, I, with all of her infirmities and all the difficulties and everything else, I'd love to have her back. Uh, it just, she was a, I know, met but, her back when she was a little more in her prime. And I'm going to tell you, this is boy. a wonderful woman, uh, Brent, this woman. And I think somebody told Harvey this, he was telling me in one of our conversations, somebody there in Georgia came up to, he said, your mother started the biggest political movement in the history of the state of Georgia. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah, that was a that was a lawyer I was having 
lunch with back when I sold commercial real estate. And uh, as we were talking, he said, you know, your mother led the most successful conservative movement in the history of the state of Georgia. <laughs> it just floored me. And I said, really? He said, yes. The Stop ERA movement was the biggest movement in the state of Georgia, you know, the most successful conservative movement. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was, and she traveled all over the state uh, debating that issue. And uh-huh. she was she was good at it. And she and Phyllis Schlafly were big buddies. And uh-huh. uh, Phyllis thought that she had out, it was kind of like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Phyllis thought that mom had passed away and wrote a note to us in praise of mom. And in fact, mom was still alive when Phyllis died. Uh, but, but you know, mom was, uh, she just, she wasn't exactly herself, but she, then again, she was, she had anyhow, it was, a, it was interesting, but well, what, what uh, does attribute her long life to her? What do you attribute it to? Stubbornness. <laughs> well, did she was, she, was she one of these kind of gals that, um, was, um, a smoker and a drinker? No, 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 no. None of that. Well, she was. Well, she smoked right after I was born. Uh huh. And then, then she quit. You know, I drove her to smoke. Yeah, uh, yeah. And she, she did drink, but, uh, you know, it was you know, these social uh-huh. drinks. Uh, you know, and she'd go out somewhere, but, uh, but nothing much, and. When they, you know, when God, when the God who lives in Washington told us that, uh, that butter was bad for us and that margarine uh-huh. would, uh, uh-huh. lower cholesterol, uh-huh. said, oh, come on. My aunt so-and-so lived to be 97 and uh-huh. she ate butter. Uh-huh. So mom ate butter. Uh-huh. And then they said salt was bad for you. Oh, come uh-huh. on. Yeah. Uncle so-and-so put salt all over everything, and he lived to be, you know, 88. Uh-huh. And, and she dismissed all these dietary warnings from the government as nonsense, which they were. Uh-huh. And, and uh, she stayed busy. She, you know, uh-huh. she ran a manufacturing business with my father and then with uh, my brothers and me and uh, she was always moving and running and she loved to dance and she didn't, she didn't eat a whole lot. I mean, she, she ate, but she was never significantly overweight. And just to give you an idea of the spirit of the gal, when she was about 13, uh, she visited New Orleans and, uh, her aunt, Holly had a chauffeur, I think they called him Bullet, and he took mom out and taught her how to drive the car. (laughs) She knew how to drive a car at age 12 or 13. Uh Not a common thing. Her father couldn't drive a car. Her mother couldn't drive a car. Uh Her sister couldn't drive a car, but her brother could. Uh Uh, 
she would drive her father to work and pick him up after work when she was 13, 14 years old. You're kidding. <laughs> I don't know. She'd drive. He had a, he was, he sold insurance. If, if he had an appointment in some small Georgia town, uh, she would, she would drive him to that appointment. And at age 15, they wanted to go to New York to consult a voice coach for mom's sister, uh, who had quite the voice. And, uh, and my grandfather rolled it into a business appointment as well. So mom drove their 1927 Rickenbacker from Atlanta to New York. And then up to see Niagara Falls and across Canada to Detroit, Chicago, St. Louis, New Orleans, Mobile, Montgomery, and Atlanta. Again, uh-huh. she drove. She drove every inch of the way because she was the only one that knew how to I'll drive. She loved it. She loved to drive. And uh, and I asked her more than once. And I said, "Mom, how did?" I mean, this was in the day when there was no such thing as a driver's license. There was no such thing as a speed limit. And uh-huh. There were no traffic lights. Mm-hmm. Stop signs were a rare event in only in cities. Mm-hmm. And I said, of course, there were no there were no highway route numbers that didn't exist. I said, Mom, how did you find your what? How did you get to New York from Atlanta? Uh huh. Uh huh. And she said, well, my father sat in the right front seat with a map. And he'd say, turn right here, baby. <laughs> and, and that's what I would do. And, that's, and I said, well, wasn't that confusing? She said, well, there really weren't all that many roads back then. And you know, it's true. And I just, I'm going to drop a footnote to what you're saying because I'm amazed by this concept as well. At the turn of the last century, well, at the turn of 1900, there were only approximately 165 miles of paved roads outside of city limits in the United States. Wow. 165 miles. So, of course, that was before cars got, once cars got on the road, slowly. But I remember when uh, the roads where I lived were all gravel and some of them dirt. And slowly yep. but surely, as I grew up, they the blacktop, the money came for blacktop, and you know, and uh, it, it happened. And man, go ahead with your story. Yeah, but uh, you know, that's what she told me. You know that, that the highways were not paved either. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I imagine when they got to this little town here that they were aiming for, they would say, "Okay, well, the next town looks like we ought to be going over to to here." And there'd be a little sign somewhere along the road that pointed to the name of the town. And uh-huh. so you just turn and follow that road, that highway, you know, like over here we, you know, we have Alabama Highway. Guess where that goes? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, of course, you could look at the, you could look at the I, sun and kind of figure out which direction you were going to. Go ahead. Yep. Chris, may I interject a moment? Or Bob, yes, yes, Bob. Yeah, hello, Harvey. I don't know that we've ever talked, but good to hear you. Nope. 
and I was you. reflecting on the fact when you were when you were uh, wistfully talking about your mom. She loved to drive. It occurred to me in a flash she wasn't even driving back then. She was traveling. Traveling. Yeah. yeah there you go. <laughs> That's right. Um, and you qualified it very very quickly after you said they didn't even have driver's licenses. You know they weren't no. even available yet. Well, when I was a yeah. kid, the the uh, Georgia driver's license was a little piece of cardboard paper, and right you could pick you could pick up blanks everywhere. Of course, <laughs> when I was a kid, we we all wanted a pony driver's license so that we could buy liquor. And sure, get and, in the club. Uh, yep, and so we'd go get those pony things and. The state of Georgia had a stamp that they would put on it when you got your driver's license. And you could make uh, an almost perfect replica of that stamp by taking uh, a coarse tooth comb and running a pen along the edge of the teeth. And it would make this sawtooth pattern just like the Georgia State Seal. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Hard to counterfeit that seal, huh? Yeah, it was tough, man. Uh, but the funny thing was that it did not say that it was a driver's license. What was the title of that little document? It was called a chauffeur's license. Chauffeur is an occupation, and it was an occupational license. Where you're carrying, where you're driving to carry people. For for a fee on the public highways. And, of course, back then, we just thought it was quaint language, you know. We didn't attach any legal importance to it. It Chauffeur's license, okay, driver's license. But that's what it was. It was a chauffeur's license. And everybody became convinced that they were chauffeurs. So uh, they (laughs) they stood in line. It's very common about the time the CDL came into being back in the 80s, the commercial driver's license, which I would point out is a bit redundant because a driver's license denotes commercial activity. But, of course... You know, when you say that, it sounds funny. But when it came out, it was quite common for people to have an A or B license, you know, for a semi or a straight truck without a combination, et cetera, to be called a chauffeur's license. I mean, that was just the vernacular. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what it was. When you let me uh, inject this, I've mentioned it on the program before. I read it, something that you pick up as a tidbit doing a bunch of reading. Uh, you know how they got the public to accept driver's licenses or chauffeur's licenses, Harvey? No, I had no the very, knowledge the very, of that. The very first move they made was to offer a discount on your car insurance if you had a license. It's all about the benefits. Benefits. Be careful. Oh, oh boy. There's there. always a hook. There's always a hook in there somewhere. If you see Brent, a spring leading to a dough ball, Brent, you, you can bet you know, a hook uh, Brent, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Brent, you know that passage in the Psalms that talks about if you're a man given to appetite, 
Uh-huh. You know, you'd be better off to cut your throat. Don't eat the yeah. king's dainties. Don't take his benefits because yeah. if you do, uh-huh. buddy, you're in the army. You're in the army now. You're enlisted. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. If Benefit. you take what they call, uh, the law calls it, uh, the court cases call it uh, uh, FFA, FFA, Foxtrot, Foxtrot Alpha, Federal Financial Assistance. Uh, it doesn't mean future farmers of America. Don't be fooled. But at one dollar of FFA, one dollar of FFA gives the government, whether it's the state or the feds, control of you uh, respecting the activity that um, the FFA is given to. For instance, a famous case, I believe it was back, yeah, it was in the 80s, I think. Uh, Bob Jones University down there in South Carolina, oh, wow. Bob Jones College. You know, they said, well, we we want all the Africans to come here. They had people going there from Africa and. Of course, black people from America. Well, great, we love you. We want you, but we don't want you. We don't want the white girls dating you. We don't want uh, you dating white girls. We do not allow interracial dating, holding hands, any of that stuff. And uh, finally, somebody sued him. It went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, "Look, you get federal financial assistance down there at that college." And they said, "No, we don't." Oh, yes, you do, because the students go to school there that receive loans. From and grants from the insured from the federal government. Therefore, we call that federal financial assistance. You see, if you're, they were taking a benefit. The students that came there uh, were receiving money that uh, they were paying uh, uh, Bob Jones with, and so Bob, uh, the government said, then you have to follow our policies, and that's what happened. There are a few schools in the nation that don't do that. Uh, some of them are worthwhile. Some of them aren't. In other words, they don't accept any students that have federal or state grants or um, loans, and in other words, benefits from the feds. Um, I remember reading, there were two governors from Illinois, uh, just bang, bang, both of them went to federal prison, one for five, almost five years, George Ryan, and the other one for 10 years, I believe it was, he's still in, he had, what was his name, Blagojevich, Blagojevich. Oh, yeah. Both of them went, neither one of them were criminals, uh, and, and neither one of them were convicted of what they accused them of, and what they accused them of wasn't a crime. That doesn't mean that Blagojevich wasn't a jerk and all that, he might have been, but he, uh, he was friends with the wrong guy on the wrong day. That's the way politics works. Well, he went to federal prison, but uh, in both of those indictments, the indictments start out with the same language. The state of Illinois has received, during the period in question, uh, over $10,000 of FFA, federal financial assistance. The states accept federal financial assistance. Therefore, the governors that people put into office in their states are under control of the, of the federal government. Now, do we stop to consider that? That's the problem. Why is it that taxes, income taxes to the general government in Washington, D.C. are four or five times, six times, seven, eight, nine, ten times greater than the amount of income taxes you pay to your local state. There's a reason for that. The states are utterly dependent upon the federal government for money. In other words, they wouldn't have any money, by and large, at this point, if they didn't depend on the Federal Reserve Bank to send it to them. Now, the federal government is dependent upon the Federal Reserve Bank, but they're in close league. People say that the Federal Reserve Bank is a private bank. It is, but it de facto controls the federal government. And by doing that, it controls the state governments. But all of that comes down to who controls the prosecutors that prosecute your politicians in your own state. 
And uh, the reason they do that is because of the bank providing the money to the states. They print it and give it to them. Therefore, they control the state governments, too. That's the position we're in. Brent? Back, Roger, yeah. Do you know what the biggest asset on the federal books is? Uh, me and you, I imagine. No. Student what? loans. Student loans. Student loans. Oh. $1.8 trillion. Well, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. But... Um, all that again is just um, it's just slavery, it's utter slavery, and uh, I would encourage people at all costs don't do that. It's not good for our country. Not there's good a, for you. There's a whole yeah. bunch of them that are wishing they wouldn't have. I can tell you that. Yeah. And then you yeah. see see some of them, and I saw one, a guy, and he got his student loan package, and he said, "Hell, I'm going to take my girlfriend and go to a vacation for a, a month in Thailand." <laughs> Yeah. And he spent all his student loan. had videos, and they got their little cameras and taking all their little, you know, tourist excursions. Did they prosecute him? I don't know. Oh, I thought you meant they had prosecuted him. No, I just well, saw him bragging about it. Somewhere. Oh, I remember back in the day uh, when I was in school, if you wanted $500, uh, you just uh, filled out the forms, and the federal government, if you're a student, would send you $500, a grant. Now, $500 was like... Um, were comparable to $5,000 or more today. So that was quite a chunk of change for a guy to get that was in college. Most of the guys I'd hear them talking about, they'd say, well, I wanted to go get a stereo set. So I did. I got my grant, went and bought a stereo set. It didn't. There were no checks, no policing, no following up. There doesn't need to be. If you're going to give people federal money, you've already blown it. Who cares at that point? It destroys everything. That's like these people around here, farmers. I mean, the smallest of farmers where I'm from in the Midwest here receive at least $100,000 a year to do nothing, to let their land lie fallow. fallow. All they have to do is mow it or plow it under. They don't plow it under anymore. That costs too much fuel. So they just try to mow it somehow, maybe, or do that, and then get paid uh, a fair profit on what they would have made if they would have planted it. And they, they set aside lots of land, they get lots of money, they get all sorts of federal grants, and they're the ones that are moaning and complaining about people getting welfare in the cities. Well, the people in the cities don't need to be getting welfare either, but why are you complaining? You know, as they say, uh, why is it that men uh, are in the habit of rattling their chains to proclaim their freedom? And that's what farmers have been reduced to in america it is destroying us don't think that the evil empire and the 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 evil one himself hasn't got that figured out he he's not in any hurry he back during the days of uncle lindy johnson those farm programs came in under the great society and they have destroyed farming in america they put the power in corporate farms and large farms I remember all these things. We were on the farm. We were in the chicken business. We were in the cattle business. We were in the hog business. We were in several businesses because if one failed, the other one might come through and we might not starve to death. And so we planted different kinds of crops and had different kinds of animals, just a lot of little stuff. A few eggs every week. Uh, people had a milk cow and the milk truck came around, picked up the milk. Today, uh, we have uh, egg manufacturing plants of hundreds of thousands of birds. We have a corporate. Hey, Brent. Oh, yeah, go ahead. You, go ahead. You'll get a chuckle out of this, I suspect. My dad was born in 19, to give you a perspective. Uh-huh. He'd been gone now. He lived in 96. We buried him in 15, but oh. growing up where we did, um, he was a, he was a, uh, 
he never irrigated. He wasn't real proud of it. I mean, he wasn't real sold on the idea of the irrigation. He was pretty sure that, well, basically it was just artificial. I mean, uh-huh. there, you know, at some point you're going to have to pay the piper. And, of course, the Ogallala uh-huh. is going down, and they proclaim loudly that they have nothing to do with it. And, of course, the people in the club, they make a groundwater district, so they can uh-huh. keep what they got, and you can't drill. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, okay. we'd be we'd be driving somewhere, <clears throat> traveling, and uh, mm-hmm. somebody would see this nice big farmstead, you know, with multiple four-wheel drive tractors and, I mean, articulated tractors and big old 200 by 300 buildings and a huge brick house, you know, and somebody would comment on the fact that it was a nice place and Dad would just dismissively say, that's government housing. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. Bob, you mentioned the Ogallala. Isn't that that huge aquifer that runs over the, or used to be huge, yes. under the whole Midwest yes. part of the country? Yes. And that's Eastern really... Colorado, Western Kansas. That's really... Down into the Texas Panhandle. Uh, it's it's really... It has been really depleted, hasn't it? Well, it has nothing to do with irrigation, though. Just read their publications. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> that's more of that logic. Deeper, that's if, more. If, that's more of that logic. Go, Brent was telling us. If you go deeper, you'll about. get into the Dakota. Yeah, yeah that's more of that. The Ogallala is about four hundred feet, but the Dakota is down about eight hundred feet, and it's a whole different geographic area. But where I lived, they were one one covered the other, but much deeper. Well, let me ask Good. you a question. Anyway, all this fracking in those areas is that. Uh, uh, seeping down into the aquifers and polluting them? Couldn't say. I don't know that there's much done where I'm from, as far as that goes. But uh-huh. uh, well, you know, this this aquifer covers this aquifer covers nearly entire uh, Texas Panhandle uh-huh. down into Texas. Yeah. The the whole Oklahoma Panhandle. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the Western one third of Kansas, the eastern one quarter of Colorado, and the almost the entire state of Nebraska, uh, along with a little bit of South Dakota and Wyoming. And what it really comes down to then is the the Great Plains drainage basin of the Platte River plus the Arkansas River stretching into the south. It's massive, and it's the most dominant. Yeah, apparently the most dominant geologic structure. I know I've been out along the Platte, and the Platte is that river they. People, people call it braided because it just wanders. It's, it's m- as much underground as it is on top of ground. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't, I have not lived there, but you mentioning it, I didn't realize how important it was to everything that was happening there. You're bringing that to my. Oh, company. yeah. 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 It's, it's a huge part. But he didn't yeah, expect, he, it. he didn't expect he could farm without irrigation, did he? Well, he did for a number of decades, so I guess he did. <laughs> so he got enough but, rain. He got enough rain he could do it, apparently, right? Well, we were on a river bottom, and I grew up about in time to see it go dry. Wow. And uh, But we still had relatively close water, and uh, uh-huh. being in some pretty good soil and being down on the river, it was... Uh, doable with a little rain and of course that's all we got was a little rain uh where i grew up we had 19 inches as an average okay. and of course averages are made out of swings so there were years you got 15 and years you got 25 and 
uh, if they came the right time, everybody, well, Dad always said, you know, people would talk about somebody being a really good farmer and others not, and he said, well, weather can make a fool look like a champion and a champion look like a fool, you know, it's just uh-huh. sometimes Boy, it ain't about you, it ain't, it ain't about your ability. Uh-huh. That is that is wisdom. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A lot of us but out there. If you talk to a lot of the government, if you talk to a lot of those folks in government housing, they are self-made. Yeah, right. Yeah. With <laughs> with resolution, with resolution in their voice and a set to their chin, they did it. Yeah, I see that yeah. too. Mm. <laughs> I'm sure. Right yeah. here, close. No question. Oh, figure, sure. out way, yeah. figure out a way to funnel government money into your pocket. The whole, okay. the, the whole thing's just built. I mean, it, it amazes me. I've been in it all these years. I've spent many years of my life dedicated to understanding, studying, and being able to help other people understand this. And it still amazes me how big a scam this thing is from top to bottom. You know, this is off topic. But given the fact that we all seem to be word guys, for better or worse, you know, I was surprised at some point to realize that the word benediction meant blessing. Uh-huh. And when you break it down, of course, it's the same root word as benefit, uh-huh. you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> something good. And, and, and in this case, with the diction, you know, it's, it's in word or spoken. So it's something good that's spoken. It's a blessing. <laughs> yeah. When I first came into that, you know, and we're talking about government benefits, of course, that's in air quotes or, or uh, uh, you know, quotation marks because you don't really, it, it, it appears to be a benefit, but it'll be your snare, you know. But uh-huh. I, was, I, I just, first time I heard benef- benediction, well, I, I think it came about when Pope, <clears throat> Pope Papa, Papa Benedict came around, and I got to thinking about what it even meant. You know, this is, what, 15, 20 years ago? Uh-huh. And I, I got to oh. study in the Word and realized what it meant, and it was like, well, that's kind of insightful. Uh-huh. A, a spoken blessing. Uh, yeah. It, you know, it, it, it's, interesting. It's, it's a good word spoken, and that's right. And the Latin word gets the, gets the idea. The English equivalent is bless. Bless, which is an old word that has to do with blood. It, it talks about the blessing with blood, which, of course, is the redemption by the man and uh, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He blesses by his blood. So the word blessing is a good word. The trouble with it is it's, it's short, it's sweet, it gets the point, but people don't have a clue what it means. They just know it sounds nice, and when it goes off in their brain, it pops like a balloon, and it just makes them feel good. Oh, blessing, but it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I try to I try to translate. There's two words in the Bible translated blessing or benediction. If you're in the Latin Romanist Latin Bible, and um, the Old Testament word is barak, barak. And well, barak means a good word spoken. But that's a clumsy way to translate. I've looked for the word blessing is the best translation if people understood it, but they don't know what it means. So I, I reject it for that reason. It's become like a lot of words in our uh, Christian world hackneyed. They just sound nice, but nobody stops to ask what they mean. And that's another one of them. Like sin. Well, sin doesn't sound nice, but it, it has a distinct meaning in old Anglo-Dane speech. But we've forgotten what it means, too. It means law-breaking. Sin is law-breaking. To break 
the law. It's a nice word because it's short, it's sweet, three little letters, and it hits home if people know what it means, but they don't anymore. It's been forgotten. Um, Harvey, I was talking earlier yes. in the show. We had quite a conversation, at least from my end, because uh, uh, none of these people <laughs> knew who this guy was. Uh, and I brought up, I would say, the great Joseph Sobran, uh, because I really oh, yeah. consider his writings to be in that category. And as I think about it, it was you probably that turned me on to Joseph Sobrand. Didn't you have a chance to meet him? No, I never met him, but uh, but I read his columns uh, with some regularity. And I always found that he had um, insights that were ordinary men were not blessed with. And uh, he was just, he was, he was witty. And, but, uh, of course, he was in a different world than I was. He was Catholic, and I am certainly not. But, uh, now, he, he, yeah. I mentioned your, my friend and your cousin, Chris, who I greatly admire, always have. Yeah. Okay. And, he is Catholic, and he's your cousin. Mm-hmm. With, then mm-hmm. obviously you had a, 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 a denominational rift in the family background somewhere. Uh, yeah, Charlie and I departed for greener pastures. <laughs> okay, you're refor- uh, you reformed. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I belong to a reformed Presbyterian church. I mean, we're about as modern as... Uh, the early 1700s, and <laughs> I'm happy with that. I like it. Yeah, I bet. Uh, here's a quote from Joe Sobran. He said, now this is from 94, said, but the epitaph of the 20th century may well be, quote, here lie the victims of open-mindedness. Mm. And, you know, just a doggone good insight. Uh, so, um, I, I just highly I, encourage if any of you are hearing this and you're not familiar with his work, uh, he was a great writer. He had a real gift of being succinct, of being able to take those concepts, turn them where they're real witty and clever, and imprint them on your mind. Yeah, here's one. Uh, the federal government has become essentially an agent of many evils, a weak and rotten tyrant whose collapse is desirable. It has vastly exceeded its constitutional powers and for bad purposes, like promoting abortion. If it ceased to exist, we would actually be closer to the kind of government we had when the Constitution was adopted than we are now. Uh, and he defined Washington as the city that never blushes. I thought that was. Uh, yeah. This guy, this guy, he didn't live long. He's not much older than than us. He says here he died in 2010, so he only lived about 60. Well, he died at age 64. Yeah, he died of died type two diabetes. In other words, he ate himself to death. Yeah, and he, was he real big? Heavy? He was chubby in the photographs oh. I saw of him. Uh-huh. But, 
but you can die of diabetes and be rather slim uh, if you just load up on uh, man-made wheat, you know. Yeah. You know, in case anybody doesn't know, the wheat plant we have today is not the wheat that is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, go over uh, that. Harvey, <clears throat> you went over this last week when you called one day, and and this would be, I'd like to see if Brent is knows this. So if you'd go into that again, the difference in the wheats and what happened. Yeah. Well, this was genetic modification before they knew how to modify genetics uh, in the lab. They were just crossbreeding, and they they did it to such an extent that they doubled the number of chromosomes in the wheat plant. And you know, forever, you know, for uh, you know, America, the the beautiful, you know, for amber waves of grain. Well. Ain't no amber waves anymore, are there? You got dwarf hybrid wheat, and they got these big pods on short stalks because the long, tall stalks uh, wouldn't hold that heavy wheat head up. And there's anyhow, instead of having 24 chromosomes in the uh, chromosome pairs in the wheat plant, we've now got 48. So. It's a great example of man usurping God's authority to create life forms. And and it breaks down in the stomach and the intestine. It breaks down from starch to sugar at twice the rate that, that original, you know, God created wheat uh, uh, does. So that's it, why in the old days they didn't have all these gluten problems that people yeah, experience. Right. Yeah, I don't know about these gluten problems. I, I, a lot of that, I think, is a secondary thing, and I can't speak authoritatively about it, but I think a lot of the gluten stuff is, uh, well be polite i just say it's the kind of stuff you wouldn't want to step in <laughs> uh, the uh, the once they got people convinced that gluten was the enemy then they started producing products that are gluten-free gluten you know? uh-huh yeah yeah and i go to the <laughs> i go through the grocery store i can't buy anything all they got is crap food yep, yep and and uh you know you you look at a box of cheerios and it has a big thing that says gluten free and you pick up something that you never in your life imagined could possibly have gluten in it like vinegar a bottle of vinegar or olive oil or something like that it says gluten free well i don't want them to put a label on there that says gluten free I want to put a label on there when they find some vinegar or olive oil that's got gluten and they even brag about that. Because, <laughs> you know, that's when I want to be alerted. Say, hey, this has got gluten in it. But it's, it's just nuts. I think they've gone off the deep end. But now they've got, this big, they've got this big economic model rolling, and they're making money off mm-hmm. the people who think it. All their food has to be gluten free, and their well people are out there putting me, 
Uh, let, let me tell you, mayonnaise on white bread. They don't have yeah. this thing going all that good. They're having to put a hundred and twenty billion dollars a night into the repo market just to keep it afloat. Yeah, yeah. boy, it's, it's uh, you know when you base your your uh, your society on corrupt beliefs, it's not not too terribly surprising that you um, well it's just like Joe Sobern said about the federal governments you know, it's, it's desirable that it collapse and I think that's um, <laughs> yeah. well it's yeah, about to one of the, it's about to yeah. in some way shape or form or else we're going to break out into an all out civil war yeah uh, Brent, did you hear that true news segment here? And I try and send you the ones that look important. Um, the about a week or so ago, where they were going back historically and doing an overview of the things that were happening right after Lincoln got elected, and connecting them to everything that's happened after Trump got elected. Did you happen to see that? No, I didn't. Oh, boy, did. the did parallels you? are striking. Uh huh. Did you see it, Bob? Bob, did you? No, I did not see that. Well, I, I, I didn't see that one. Well, I know Daryl did, but I, but he hadn't joined us yet today. Maybe I can call him up here. But they were talking about the states in rebellion and the difference in the parties hated each other and all the things that were happening in that first part of Lincoln's term. And, man, it just paralleled exactly what's going on with Trump. Well, the, the division has never changed, and the division among mankind has never changed in 4,000 years. And what happened during that t- terrible, awful war, uh, well, Abe Lincoln, Abe Lincoln put his finger on it when he, and that, that's not to say that Abe Lincoln was doing the right thing, but like a lot of people in those positions, he said things that were very true. And at the Lincoln-Douglas debate, in Charleston, Illinois, he was traveling around the state with Douglas, and they were having these debates. They were running for U.S. senator. And of course, the object was to convince the people of the state to tell their state legislature to vote for Lincoln or Judge Douglas. Well, Lincoln made this point at Charleston. He said there's only two kinds of government in the world. There never have been any more than two, and there never will be. You either got the government that says you work, you sweat, you earn bread, and you eat it, or the government that says you work, you sweat, you earn bread, and the other fellow gets to eat it. Well, that's it. And there's no sense trying to make it any more complicated than that, but the labels have changed through the centuries today. I like to say one is the law of the land, and the other one's the law of the city. And the division in our country during that terrible, awful war was the rural areas, the producing areas, the agricultural areas versus the city elite at that time in New England. Uh, That was the division. Then they persuaded the farm boys from Ohio and Illinois and Indiana to get on the bandwagon and die and kill and die for them. That's how ugly it was. And they did. That's how gullible we can be. And of course, then there were problems in places like Kentucky and Missouri and Kansas where things got plumb out of control, not to mention other places, I suppose. But that hasn't changed. It hasn't changed at all. We're still, we're under that division. I've talked to people from China. They have that same division there. They're trying, they're building cities and trying to get folk to migrate into them, yeah. but they can't do it. Yep. But they know, and they're trying to make people in the countryside that are the producers, make them feel stupid like they're country bumpkins. The Romans did the same thing on the 
British Island. They built beautiful roads. They built beautiful cities with, with uh, running water and plumbing systems and aqueducts to carry the water in and public baths and all the hedonism that went with uh, the city. But they couldn't get the Celts and uh, the Celts mostly at that time to move into the cities. They just didn't. They, it, was, it wasn't who they were. So they couldn't control Britain. If they can't get people into the cities, they won't control. The same thing happened in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. When under the policies of the, the Hebrew, by the name of Joseph, people were taken off of the land and yep. put into cities that they had built so they could control them and tax them. The same thing happened in Genesis chapter 11 in Babylon. Everybody, let's gather around in the city. They all come into the city. Why? So we can fleece you and control you, and then we'll take you out and you can farm the land. The same thing happened in Europe when they built the castles. They said, we'll have all the serfs out here. They'll farm the land, and if somebody attacks, you can all run in the castle. And on and on and on it goes. It's the folk that produce. The only way production can occur initially is from the land. There is no other way. Everything we have comes from the land, whether what we eat or what we wear, what we drive on the road, the metal, and the agricultural products. What is mined, what is worried from the rocks of the earth, or what is coaxed from the soil of the ground. That's all we have. And when people are taken off the land, then the large corporations, that's the method here, large corporations, which of course are controlled ultimately by the government, control the farming increasingly in America. And if we don't have a backlash against that, we will be destroyed. Why? Well, I know the evidence is pretty clear. History is clear as crystal. What will happen? And so it comes down to us, me, you, the folks that listen, let's get the right mindset. Let's get it in our, into our heads what Abraham had into his head when he left that ugly city called Ur. It said that he got to walking. He just got out and <laughs> he started walking. Which way did he go? He went west. Go west, Abraham. He went west. It, the Bible says he didn't know where he was going and he didn't know what he was going to do when he get, got there. But he knew he had the impulse to travel. There's that word again, travel. And if travel is taken away from us, then we have forgotten and separated ourselves from the most fundamental agreement we can make with God, which is to be fruitful and travel, to multiply, to scatter over the faces of God's earth, to bring it into, into lordship, into lordship for his purposes. And if we're not on the land, that won't happen And the government will bring the land into lordship, and then need I tell you what will happen in that case. They will control everything, and they will destroy the land, utterly destroy it. And that's what they're doing in places while, where they've taken while they're here. While they're worshiping it. Yeah. Well, here it is, the difference between the law of the land and the law of the city, the kingdom of God and the evil empire, the covenant of God and uh, the evil empire. Here it is. Uh, the evil empire will drive men to worship and serve the, the land or something on it, the creature, the creation thereof. Worship and serve it and dominate other men to make your living. The law of the land says no. We dominate the land and we serve other men. We dominate the land to make our living and we serve other men. And that's what Jesus Christ meant when he said, do not be as the leading men, the princes of, 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 the, of the nations, of the nations, the ethnos, which is equivalent to the Old Testament, goyim. The other nations, speaking, by the way, of the Jews, that's that he was applying that whole idea to them, who seek, he said, to dominate one another. My word, do I get weary of that. You go into, well, there are just certain religious points of views. Go into a hardcore Roman Catholic community. We've got a few around here. See how those folks live. They live to dominate one another. And how do you, why do they dominate one another? Because that's their culture. Why is it then in the... In the 
culture of Babylonian Judaism. It's all about getting money out of the other fella. It's not about production. It's about how can I skin the other guy? How, that's what Romanism is. How can, how can we get money out of people uh, without working at it, without having to produce anything ourselves? That's, what, that's the position. Uh, we all want to be professors and judges. Uh, that's the, what they all seek. That's why the courts are filled with people of that religious persuasion, lawyers, judges. They want to be in position, academics and universities. People, their religious point of view demands that they get. Uh, here's another one, Hollywood. Just get in a position where you can get money without producing anything. You just take money from other people. Banking, there's another one. Usury, you just get money by, by shuffling papers around. You produce nothing. Uh, our culture of production has gotten away from us. Our puritanical beginnings that said every man must produce, every man must work. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. That's what Paul the Apostle said, a man who understood uh, Babylonian Judaism very well. He was one of them. He never mentioned any of their ugly doctrines, not once, not once did a man who had been immersed in that ugliness all of his life, not once did he ever mention the details of their religion. Now, Jesus Christ did on a few occasions when he, he went after them. Of course, that's why he, he drove them on purpose, on purpose, watch this, he drove them on purpose to murder him. He knew that's why he came. That's what it was all about, and he timed it just right. He didn't antagonize them. Uh, as much as he wanted to, maybe, but he decided when he would do it, and he would drive it home. He would go for the open confrontation, I will go back to Jerusalem, knowing that when he went back, that's what they'd do to him. He gave himself up. He drove them to it, but he never sought to dominate the other fella. Do, he's the one in John 13 that tied the towel about him, and he said, I'm going to wash you fellows' feet. You're in here? You didn't get it done? I'm going to show you that uh, what... My point of view, my point of view about worshiping the creator is I serve you and I dominate the land. That's what he taught them. Serve you, dominate the land. Do not serve the land and dominate men. Do not worship the creation. Do not be a tree hugger. Do not be an environmentalist, religious wacko. That's what they are. And then dominate men. Get into politics, dominate men, and then go out and, try and worship and serve the land and hug the trees. Just the opposite is the true religion. All other religions will get to that point sooner or later. Dominate men so much they'll murder babies and say that's what we must do. Why? Because what I want is to dominate you and get your money. I'll get you to murder your baby and you pay me. Or I'll get the taxpayer to pay me and I'll become filthy rich murdering babies. That's the difference. Just, it just plays out. It plays out in so many different fact patterns. The destruction. And God wants us to say, hey... Uh, you, God, I uh, appreciate it. You've given me the revelation of who you are. It's in writing, the laws of nature's God in writing, and the laws of nature not in writing. The observations we make around us of the relationships between things and people and people and people. That's our common law. Back to you, Roger. Wow. Uh, I've always thought, Brent, that your synopsis of that is the simplest, and I use it a lot in, in when I talk to people the law of the ver city versus the law of the land. It's just so easy to understand. One, you dominate the land, you dominate people and you worship the land. The other, you dominate the land and you help people. It's just clear cut. It's easy to understand. And when you get it that basic and simple, people can understand it much easier. I know I can. And the truth is simple and clear. Always, always, always. If it's too complicated, get away from it. Well, it's like you said one time on here, when you know the basics, anything's simple. Yeah, when you understand it, that's true. And the basics are right. right. 
So well, that, well it's a blessing. You, you, uh, Har- you know how I how this came about, Harvey, and I know you don't, mm-hmm. but it's very interesting <laughs> that a number of years ago when I was back at what I affectionately call, hey, Patrick, uh, ex-wife number two, um, mm-hmm. Larry B. Craft, our friend Larry B. Craft, had a mm-hmm. show on weekends, and Larry would send out an email uh, on who he was going to have as a guest because it wasn't a show like this. And uh, it wasn't long after I'd gotten over there, and it comes through, and he said, I'm going to have common law expert Brent Winters on. And I thought, well, here's somebody else that knows something about the common law, because up to that point, the only person I knew that really had a handle on it was John Benson. By the way, Mm -hmm. Harvey, Harvey knew John uh, also. Oh, uh and uh, Uh so I got Brent on. And we did our first couple of shows, and there was just chemistry and magic there from the start. And my initiative was to get him and John together to have a common law program. But John was sick by then, and we never, I think maybe they got together once, but we were never able to pull it off. But Brent and I enjoyed it so much that we started. This was, Brent, I mean, it's like five or six years we've been doing this. And with the exception of my foot and some of your uh, trial uh, uh, calendars, um, we hadn't missed a Friday in five or six years, however long we've been doing it. No, it could have been a technical uh, snafu maybe, but that's right. I want to ask Harvey a question. He'd started to talk about something his dad said. I want to hear that. But um, if oh. you do two things, do wait, Harvey, two things. Number one, first, before you tell me what your dad said, tell me what uh, what the name of the church is down there where you attend. I want to look them up. Oh, okay. Uh, well, where my membership is still is in Cumming, Georgia, at Chalcedon Presbyterian Church. Uh-huh. Who's that pastor? Right. What's his name? I've forgotten. Joe Moorhead? Moorcraft. Well, Moore. Joe's not the pastor anymore. Uh, he's elsewhere. And uh, Tim Price is the pastor now. But, but that's two hours away from me now. You know, I moved five years ago. While I was looking after Mom, there came a point I couldn't, I couldn't go to church. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I had to. Mom... Mom wouldn't behave herself in church, <laughs> and uh, anyhow, so uh, is that a PCA? I've been, I've been attending uh, a Reformed Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, which is known as uh, Brainerd Hills Presbyterian Church, and you know, small, just like what I'm accustomed to, small church. Uh, does um, David Tullis go to church there? Uh, in Chattanooga? Uh-huh. I don't know. Okay, never uh, met him. Never. Could be, yeah, it could be a big church, could be another one. I just know some people down there, and I know they go to a Reformed Presbyterian church. And, well, that's uh, it. That's, that's the one. Bit. And oh. I'll keep an eye out for him. But, I, I, you know, I know several of the people there, but not the whole bunch. I'm not fully yeah. integrated into the church and I haven't I haven't moved uh, membership to that church but but one of the things I like when I checked online well I was talking to a fellow several years ago and my brother Charlie who's a Baptist uh, joked to me says Harvey B says watch out for this guy he's not to be trusted and I said really he said yeah 
he's Presbyterian. <laughs> and, uh, and so we chuckled and he, he told us, well, where do you go to church? And he told me, and, um, and I, I had looked at that church and I went, uh-uh, uh-uh, something's wrong here. And they had women involved in the ministry somehow. And I said something to him. I said, no, that's not what I believe in. And uh, he said, well, maybe you ought to, maybe the church you're looking for is Brainerd Hills. (laughs) So so I went up there. Sure enough, that was it. They they have in on their webpage, among other things, they strongly support homeschooling. Well, man, that's. That uh, just lights my fire uh-huh. because uh, the greatest greatest threat, the greatest evil in this society is the government-run school. Uh-huh. And they, they have completely disrupted our culture. They've made war uh-huh. on Christ and Christians. Uh-huh. And that would be they, one of the ten planks right there. Yep, you got it. Yep. Well, listen, we're we're whistling in the background. I'd love to hear more, and I think we could go on for another hour today pretty easy. Brent, I'm just going to suffice what you usually say and say commonlawyer.com, commonlawyer.com is how you get more Brent winners. And I wish we could get more of him here, but we have him on Fridays, and we love it, and glad to have him every time. And hopefully we close out the week and give you something to your word, Brent, ruminate on over the long weekend. So I want to thank everybody that contributed today. We've had a lot of uh, good discussion, and hopefully left you something to ruminate on over the weekend. You guys have a good one. I'll see you back on Monday. Sure, thank you, Harv, for calling in, and Bob, and and Chris and the others have joined us, and uh, we'll see you Monday and see what happens over the weekend. Bitcoin went up $1,000 in minutes this wow. morning. So maybe something cooking this weekend financially. We'll see what happens Monday. Wow. You guys have a good one. Yeah. Okay, Roger. Hey, Rod, give me, give me Harvey's number, Rod. Send I'll, me Harvey's number. I'll do it. I'm going to call you, Patrick. Lady All right. Hang on. Hasta la vista.